Welcome to The Greenwood, the official podcast of the company of Little Dunmo. Today on the podcast, I'll be speaking with Hannah Rowley. Hannah is a graduate student of California State University with an undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley in English, emphasis on medieval studies. She now focuses on academic rhetoric and composition, but has spent much of her research time on early Anglo-Saxon and later medieval literature. All right, I'm here with Hannah Rowley, um, and we're here to talk today about the cult of the Virgin Mary in the pre-Norman era leading into the um, kind of the uh, 12th and 13th centuries. Um, hi, Hannah. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Hey. Thanks for having me yeah. on. This is awesome. Uh, this is, you're our first uh, scholar, as it were. Wow. <laughs> so... <laughs> I feel really special being called a scholar. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, in, in the reenacting world, a lot of the people who are into it, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, there's like people who are professional educators. Um, and then uh, a, a very good friend of mine, in fact, uh, is a professional educator and um, a very good reenactor. And then there's people who are kind of just sort of uh, hobbyists in every sense of the word. And uh, so I'm a hobbyist uh, and, uh, and, you're, <laughs> and you're an educated person. So hopefully we can kind of, I guess I am. Hopefully we can meet in the middle and talk intelligently on the subject. Um, yeah. I, so, well, the first question that I wanted to open with is, uh, why uh, did you, how did you first get into studying um, the medieval period? What sparked your interest in that world? That is a really hard question. I'm going to answer it really simply just by saying I kind of discovered it by accident. Um, I originally, I've always been an English major, but I originally wanted to read only Victorian literature, like forever. That's all I ever wanted to read. And for this, like for the purposes of this podcast, I won't go into which kinds, but I had to take in earlier British literature seminar. And one of the things that we had to read was Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Excellent. And it, we read it in like the facing page, middle English to modern English translation. Oh, beautiful. Which was extremely worthwhile. And I realized then that I had never actually sat down and focused on the origins of our literary tradition. And I felt a little ashamed. <laughs> so yeah, well, I started reading more. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you that you were interested in 19th century um, literature, primarily because some of the great 19th century poets and, and whatnot were sort of um, sort of the first like modern medievalists, if you will, like they, they oh, were yeah. totally, totally, totally romantic about that period. And uh, in fact, there was a, I don't know if you know this, but there was, um, uh, Queen Victoria had like a, they had like a reenactment, um, of like medieval, they had like a jousting tournament. This is like in the 1840s oh, and, um, awesome. yeah. And like, uh, the original, Ren the Fair. original Ren Fair. it was like the first, <laughs> yeah, it was the first one. Yeah. It was like one of the first medieval reenactments was, um, was at the, uh, yeah, at the request of Queen Victoria, and they they did it. You know, they did it up, and uh, Al, you know, Alfred Lord Tennyson was like a big, you know, big influencer on all that stuff. And there was a real heightened 
uh, awareness of the medieval period in the 19th century, um, which, which, yeah, which I think is cool. <laughs> um, all right. So jumping in to the topic at hand, um, what, what are the origins in England of the cult of the Virgin Mary? Where does it come from? And um, yeah, what did it, what did it, yeah, where did it come from? <laughs> so where did it come from? Yeah. Um, well, technically, if I wanted to be a real smarty pants, I could say Mary, right, sure. um, but I won't. So there are two main periods of growth for the cult of the Virgin Mary um, in looking at it. The first really focuses on the 7th to 8th centuries, and that's looking at her original feasts, which are initially Roman, but were brought to us by Eltham mm. and by Bede. Um, and then the second is focusing mostly on newer understandings of devotional practices. Um, and that was kind of the 10th century onward. So after we had the original feasts, and I'm talking like the Dormition, the Assumption, that kind yes. of thing. Um, technically, actually, Nativity was considered a Feast of the Virgin Mary as well for a long time. Yeah, well. Before that gained liturgical uh, problems. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, as soon as somebody caught wind of like, what do you mean? This is a Feast about Mary. It's a Feast about Christ. That was shut down oh, right. pretty uh, radically. But um, that was originally actually also considered a Feast of Mary. Uh, so after those feasts she then gained bigger liturgical recognition. So if we're talking about the origin of the cult, then technically speaking, it's biblical, um, even though we only hear about her really briefly in the New Testament, um, mostly in Mark. Um, but as societies and Anglo-Saxon England became aware that Christ was a holy being, um, they started to kind of think, well, hey, what about Mary? Um, sure. And the cult itself originated just simply from that. They, as soon as Mary was regarded as, um, as, as the Holy Virgin, as soon as she was taken seriously, uh, then there became a cult following. Sure. Now, wh what does that look like in kind of uh, practical terms as far as, I, I might be jumping ahead to some, some of the later questions that I had, but um, just to kind of put it in the Anglo-Saxon context, uh, when we talk about a cult, first of all, what um, that word is kind of scary today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what do we mean by cult and what, uh, what did that look like in practice amongst um, clergy and laity? So put really simply, the cult is actually just focusing on, at least in the pre-conquest setting, it's focusing on the privatized devotion to Mary. Um, Christians heavily publicize their faith towards Christ. You see it on a crucifix, you see it in churches, but um, until the Catholic era, we don't really see a lot of public devotion to Mary. Of course, now any Catholic church you go into, you will see Our Lady of Sorrow, um, but that wasn't typical prior to that. So because it was so privatized and because um, it was done in smaller liturgical circles. It became referred to at that point in time as a cult. Of course, if you say that now, the word has a much heavier meaning. It, it, they do not mean the same thing. It really honestly should be called more like a fellowship or a brotherhood or, oh, sure. um, yeah. you know, something like that. That would, that would really make more sense. But so, going off of what they referred to it at that point in time, it would be the cult of the Virgin Mary. Right. So, so um, basically what we're looking at is, is, um, private devotions by lay people, but also clergy mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and this is this is in the form of, I mean, obviously at this time, um, 
we don't have the the rosary in the sense that we do later. Um, yeah. But we do have uh, there is evidence of you know prayer beads and things like that. Were these the types of devotion mm-hmm. devotions that were going on um, in private life, or were they or were they just sort of? Um, yeah. So so that looked different as time went on. In the very beginning, when there were feasts, um, much like we have now in many Orthodox circles. Um, liturgies and prayers and praises that were specifically dedicated to the mother of God were used. And, um, and of course, you know, people that varied by the church, right? Like you could have very long vesperal services or you could have fairly long liturgical services really depends on where you are. Um, But as time went on, then we start getting into kind of the monastic understanding of Mary. Mm -hmm. Um, As soon as there were monasteries dedicated to Mary and as soon as the, um, the cultural understanding of what it meant to be a monk uh, shifted and really focused on Mary in her virgin piety, um, as soon as that happened, then we get shrines and we get pilgrimages and we get the prayer beads and uh, the rosary wasn't too much longer after that. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, that's that's sort of when the heavy devotional respects tended to occur. Sure. Yeah. Um, I just uh, I'm I'm sitting here right now, actually, in front of my um, in front of my icon corner <laughs> at home. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I just uh, I've I've got images of, of Mary all around me. I, I was looking through this. um this book that I have that takes a lot of uh, prayers from that time. And there's a, there's actually a sixth century hymn um, that uh, that's interesting here, but it's very, it's interesting to just see how, like how these prayers to Mary or these, these hymns to Mary are also very, um, you know, Christ centered as well um, Mm -hmm. in the time um, you know, this says, uh, the womb of Mary sustaineth the threefold universe's King, you know, and oh, like, yeah. um, the moon, the sun, the universe obey him for eternity and showered with his heavenly grace, a maiden's womb containeth him. Uh, it's just really beautiful. I, I can see, you know, I can definitely see the, uh, the appeal to, to that as just a, a devotion. You know, it's, it's very, oh, it's yeah. very Christ centric, um, uh, which, you know, that debate rages to this day of the role of, of Mary, um, as well. But, uh, what, uh, in what sense, um, there's a lot of, you know, there's lots of, uh, things that you read and people will say, well, you know, the Virgin Mary and the saints, well, they just sort of took the place of these kind of like, uh, cultures that took on Christianity. They sort of took the place of like pagan deities in their, Mm. in their world. What, um, in your research, what have you found regarding that, if anything? Yeah, so, I mean, in general, medieval England has forever been subject to the claim that they were mostly pagan or they were mostly Christian. And um, as a medievalist, <laughs> I think after the amount of research I've done in the medieval world, I officially can give myself the title medievalist. Yes. <laughs> um, as someone in that field, there's nothing more frustrating because, first of all, we don't know enough about when paganism was officially washed out of Anglo-Saxon England mm-hmm. um, to make such a, a bold claim. And Beowulf is probably the text that gets the most flack for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the evolution of the Christian faith from the time of being brought to England and Northumbria up until, I mean, let's put a cut off at like the 15th century, um, there were so many additions brought in liturgically that I can see why that claim would be made. Um, 
just based on the the research and the actual liturgies that I've read, I, I would have a hard time with anyone backing that claim, just because every devotion made to Mary um, and every devotion made to the saints ultimately focuses on the fact that Christ is glory above all and that these beings or these entities are glorious um, because of their relationship to Christ. And that's really where the cult of the Virgin Mary comes from is that she gave birth to Christ and in her giving birth to such grace, she washes away the sins of Eve. Mm. Um, And lots of liturgies point back to that over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And she's often, um, she's referred to as the the new Eve as Christ is the new Mm -hmm. Adam. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's really, that's really beautiful. Um, Yeah. So what, um, what, what is, as the time goes on forward, as we get into um, the later uh, Anglo-Saxon period and then, and then post, um, am I skipping ahead? Is there, is there, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, no. I'm looking at, what, no, what, yeah, you can bounce around however you'd like it all, okay. it all what, tie together. What, um, how, moving forward past the, the, the Norman period, what, what effect did the Normans have on um, the cult of the Virgin um, and 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 maybe even uh, uh, doctrine and and faith in general uh, in in Anglo-Saxon mm. England. What what was the effects mm-hmm. there? Yeah. So um, because the pre-conquest uh, stage was so foundational in the sense that there were feasts and there was this really kind of heavy understanding that Mary was solely. Uh, glorified in her relationship to Christ, that foundation was crucial. And it like theologically speaking, I mean, it was crucial. Um, Culturally, it's easy to admire Mary if you're already Christian, Mm. but on a theological level, you have to really understand why she matters before you can jump into the, into the beauty of the Marian devotion. Um, After the Norman conquest, we see a, a big shift in the cult. It's not so much privatized kind of like, I don't mean privatized in the secret sense, but I mean, it's, it's not so much small and private in that way as it is now there's some mystical connotations attached to her name. Uh, So we start seeing liturgical evidence that Saturday became her day, Mm. um, which put her really almost on par with Christ, which obviously that raised other theological issues with lots of other denominations, but Um, Mary was given the day of Saturday and she was given all of these beautiful hymns and these beautiful prayers and praises. Um, We see liturgical data um, from her feasts and from liturgies that are recognizing her. Um, We start to see a heavier emphasis on monastic pilgrimages and monastic shrines, churches that are brought up in her name. Um, She really becomes a a character of the medieval era. Like she's no longer just this kind of side person that happened to give birth to Christ. Like she's very relevant. Um, and in, I mean, the, like one of the biggest texts that discusses Mary is the Proto-Evangelium and also Bede's texts too. He, he brings up a ton of early Marian devotion, but, um, some of the more like physical data that we have even now would be, I mean, this is like old hat to most people who reenact, I'm sure, but like the Walsingham shrines and the pilgrimages related to that um, as well. Yeah. Um, As well as others too. I mean, like Canterbury was a big one. Um, We have icons of her officially being called the queen of heaven where she's coronated by the Trinity. uh, And that comes from the 12th century. Mm. Um, lots of 
scholars that I know well would attest that ultimately the late medieval frontier, um, especially in the midst of the Crusades, was heavily Mariological. Like the Christian faith had really evolved and was now welcoming in Marian devotion. And we see it in the shrines and the liturgy and the prayers. Um, so yeah, it's a bold claim, but she very much changed um, cultural Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so, that's so neat. Um, what, uh, so going into kind of uh, doctrinally speaking about, um, you know, she seems to kind of ramp up by after the Norman invasion and mm-hmm. uh, by the, by the 12th and 13th centuries, she's very, um, very central to uh, what it means to be a Christian in Europe. Um, what, uh, what doctrinal, you talked about doctrinal, um, changes and, and maybe some doctrinal, not changes, but, but some things that maybe caused pause, um, later on, like what, what mm-hmm. maybe are some of those things that, that affect, were, were affected by that? Well, there are a few issues with, uh, the nature and the existence of Mary, that various uh, other religious groups or even other Christian groups uh, struggled with when it came down to whether or not we wanted to be on board with Marian devotion. So the Jews had a very difficult time with Mary, um, mostly because as it is, the Jewish faith isn't accepting the divinity of Christ. So how could they possibly accept the immaculate nature of somebody who had birthed Christ? Right. Um, So that alone was a, was a very large problem culturally. But additionally, in the 12th and 13th centuries, um, we're looking at Franciscans and Dominicans who are debating her immaculacy widely. Like they have a very hard time thinking that Mary is what she is. Of course, this changes, right? Like now we see <laughs> Dominican piety that oh, right. honors Mary. But in the beginning, it was not that way. The Dominicans are notoriously intellectual and um, one of the biggest things they had a hard time with was that there were no corporal remains Mm. at all of Mary. Um, And of course, if you respect the assumption as what it is, then that, that calibrates that theory, but the no corporal remains and the fact that arguing that another human being is even remotely as holy as Christ was, that was difficult as well for the Franciscans. Um, Yeah. We, we later learn of, Uh, relics pertaining to the milk of Mary or to her clothing. But in general, we have no bodily remains like we have for some saints. Mm -hmm. So that made it difficult to start honoring her and for some venerating her as well. Okay. What um, are there, were there certain monastic groups uh, that maybe championed Mary more so than others then, or um, what did, what did that look like? Do you mean like, do you mean just in general when people went to certain monasteries, like were those, yeah, well, uh, well, um, if the Dominicans were sort of down on it, were like, were mm. other, you know, were Benedictine monks more uh, receptive to that, or do we really know? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I think everybody kind of got on board with Mary around the 14th and 15th century. Like that's when we really start seeing her uh, her presence heavily, heavily in the Catholic Church. Yes. Um, of course, anybody who <laughs> anybody who has seen a Catholic church now would like laugh at the fact that the Catholics were ever not a big fan of Mary. Yeah, um, right. But it's like, it's just hard to wrap your head around. But um, in looking at like, if we're going to compare like the Orthodox versus the Catholic church, for instance, um, Orthodoxy has been on board with Mary since like the fourth century, right? right. Like her feasts are what brought Marian devotion to Anglo-Saxon England. 
but the Catholic church, because it just didn't exist as, as long, mm-hmm. um, then I guess technically we could say they were, they were later in the game. Sure. Um, the, the only people who truly were the most fanatic about the cult of the Virgin Mary really were the Anglo-Saxons. Um, really? And, and even then medieval English Christians, like they, that particular sect of Christianity um, I'm not sure why I would love to hear some data on this, but they had a particular devotion to her, which was greater than most at the time, other than like Byzantine orthodoxy. That's interesting. I, I guess that yeah. I, that I did not realize. Um, uh, yeah. That's to think that the Isles were sort of a, a enclave of um, Marian devotion and practice when maybe it was, mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't as common on the con- like uh, on the mainland. Um, yeah, not at all. Fun fact, the Isles also were one of the first groups to start bringing in female saints. And to this day, they have a, a pretty hefty population of female saints. Absolutely. And, um, that's worth noting. Maybe that has something to do with the Marian thing. I don't absolutely. Know. Well, it, it's they seem to be. Um, I don't know. Maybe if uh, some of those cultures are pretty, uh, pretty. Um, how do I want to say? They're they're pretty. If we were if we were at Berkeley, you would just say misogynistic. Oh. But <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 I'll try not to say that. But the, the, it se- it seems like those cultures, maybe on one level, though, were maybe a little more um, uh, like cool with their women. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, you oh, know, yeah. just totally. uh, yeah. It's um, it's really that's really interesting. I I and you know, of course, you know, there's a lot of talk about you know how like Ireland you know, really um, kind of incubated certain things and like brought it mm-hmm. back to the mainland during, during the tumultuous years of, of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. So I, I, it seems like, it seems like the Isles in general, whether you're talking about um, Anglo-Saxon England or you're talking about Ireland, um, they seem to really have uh, uh, kind of incubated a lot of things that were later brought to the, to the mainland. Oh yeah. Um, and and before even Mary, women were, I mean, the, the popular belief is that women were treated like garbage by Anglo-Saxons. And that's just like fundamentally untrue. Like in Anglo-Saxon England, they couldn't really grow grapes. So they had no means of producing wine mm. for communion. So there were, there's liturgical evidence that priests had asked uh, bishops and other hierarchies in the church if they could use mead instead of wine. Um, and they were allowed to, like, there's lots out there. I mean, if you read Beowulf, mead is mentioned like 55 times or something insane. So, um, mead is significant, but if you look at who's pouring the mead, it's always the women. Women are always the ones pouring the mead. Um, and of course now go to any Orthodox or Catholic church, you're not going to see a female holding a chalice. Mm. Uh, but back then they could, and they did. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's really, um, that's really interesting. How, so, um, would you, would you say then that, uh, that Mary, uh, Mary in a pretty significant, pretty significant way, um, really influenced Christian piety, um, probably more than anything else other than, than Christ himself, um, in the medieval period. Um, oh, absolutely. And, yeah, confidently. <laughs> yeah, and and um and we have we have the Anglo-Saxons to thank for that. 
Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have we have the Anglo-Saxons to thank. I mean, technically, we can't call them the Anglo-Saxons after the Norman Conquest. Sure. It just would be historically inaccurate. However, um, that whole group of people, like, we very much have them to thank that Marian devotion, uh, it spread into other countries. Mm-hmm. It lasted long enough that we still have shrines to this day in, uh, you know, southern Scotland, northern England of Mary. Um and in that sense, she she changed monastic Christianity um, very much so for lay people, but also, I mean, any woman who was taking the vow of celibacy to become a nun to this day, they they pray to ma- to Mary. Yeah. Um, and that that has to mean something. I mean, of course, monks are looking to Christ because as 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 we know and as we see, he very much is a monastic ideal as well, but in other saints too. Um, yeah. But there's something significant about Mary really being being the one um, yeah. to look to. Yeah. Um, now, by uh, by the by the 12th and 13th centuries, um, you know, you talked about by of, of course by the 14th and 15th, you know, Mary has pretty much been universally yeah. accepted by all. Um, mm-hmm. The the 12th and 13th centuries are are a period of 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 great change anyway, uh, in a lot of things, mm-hmm. but, um, was there, was there a lot different between, um, kind of the, the beginning of the Norman invasion to that, to that period in particular, or, or do we know much really about kind of that one? That, that one's a little less, uh, it's a little foggier because, I mean, the Norman and the Norman conquest that destroyed so much of what physically might have existed. So right. the popular belief is that, oh, no, there wasn't really much of a cult of a Virgin Mary, you know, before the Norman conquest. That's that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, we see widespread evidence and data that she was relevant to pre-conquest England. Um, Bishop Edmund commented on the spread of the devotion to Mary from the end of the 10th century to the conquest. And I mean... Um, I believe someone, someone Wolf, Rosemary Wolf, maybe I'm getting all my scholar names mixed up, went so far as to say that England had been one of the most chief originators in Western Europe of Marian piety. And that's like, that's early England. right? Yeah. So we know for sure that by the time the Norman conquest came around, uh, the understanding of, of Marian devotion was already foundationally set. Um, and Excellent. the fact that by the, by the 10th, 11th and 12th centuries, she was as big of a deal as she was, that kind of thing doesn't happen overnight spread across continents like that. Like that's, that's hundreds of years of devotion leading up to it. And that makes sense if we're looking at the seventh and eighth centuries as the, the time for her feasts in England. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, that's fascinating. I'm, uh, I've learned things that I did not know. Um, yeah, the more you know, more and I have know. to, I have to name drop. I have to name drop yes, Mary Clayton because anybody who wants to read up on this, um, boy, have I got names for you. But the the real one that everybody needs to read is Mary Clayton's The Cult of the Virgin Mary in Anglo-Saxon England. Excellent. Um, and she has all sorts of data on Mary. She's really the scholar to to look to. Cool. Well, I will put a link to that in the uh, show notes um, uh, at the end. Um, yeah, that's um, that's really great. Well, I'm glad that you. I before we kind of wrap all of this up, I I have to ask you um, because because this pod because of the nature of this podcast, we're sort of a, a history podcast, but we're also mm-hmm. um, 
we're these weird reenactor types that run around in funny <laughs> clothes. Um, yes. <laughs> what What do you think, uh, as somebody who's not a reenactor yet? Uh, you're funny, as, Jake. You're you're funny. <laughs> as somebody who's not a reenactor, um, <clears throat> kind of from the outside looking, excuse me, the outside looking in. Uh, what What are your thoughts, maybe on on the value of of reenacting in education as an educator? Well. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I teach young people. I teach junior hires. Um, And just in understanding how the young brain works, um, some of the most useful tools for teaching are uh, to show and to display. So if I wanted to, I mean, if I wanted to be a really cool teacher, I would take my medieval students to like a rent fair. I'd be like, all right, let's go look at some of these really cool, fun things just to look at, not because that's where like the prime reenacting is. I already know, don't even get me started, (laughs) but because they don't know what, they don't know what food looked like then. Mm -hmm. They don't know what housing looked like. They don't know. I mean, their history textbooks can only really show them so much. Absolutely. And I can only show them so many cool PowerPoint slides before they're like, okay, cool. But like, how big was it? Oh, you know, yeah. what was the setting? What was the landscape? What were they doing? You For know, sure. um, we haven't figured out the technology to put live photos in textbooks yet. So it's <laughs> like, you can, you can only see so much yeah. in, in a, in a piece of paper. Absolutely. Um, so in that vein, I think, you know, I think that if you, if you guys are ever in California, <laughs> um, pay my kids a visit a because they're, they're certainly, yeah. certainly interested in it. And I know that as a medievalist in my undergrad, I had a professor who really changed my life. Like she would bring in such cool early photos of like Frank's casket and we would go through all the inscriptions and we would look at the runic meanings of everything. And like that hands-on approach to learning, which I think reenacting um, supports mm-hmm. is crucial and we should not go without it at all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, of course. Yeah. Um, it's, well, it's interesting you say that because um, I can't tell you how many people that I know who are reenactors became reenactors because they thought history class in school was boring and, and that's they, so funny. And they, and yeah. they found, uh, they found out about a local historic site that, you know, was accepting volunteers and like they went down there and once they like got into it, they were hooked on it, you know? And, and, uh, I know people that, you know, that's literally where they started was like, Oh, I hate history. And then they, they totally. like stumbled into it, you know, at some, some public yeah. thing. And, and now they're, and, and many of them, uh, you know, went on from that to actually go and get a degree or, or whatever in uh, historical studies or museum work or whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's, uh, you know, reenacting is like a, it's a very large, very mixed bag of, of a lot of silliness and, and but but uh <laughs> only a little but for those uh for those that that value um the the kind of uh, educating of people educating of themselves primarily i think you have to i think you have to want to educate yourself before you can really go around educating other people and um oh, totally and that's uh and i i think that that's the like education is where it, it begins but then it turns into so much more it's like it's like you say you know with the kids you know there's only so much you can read in a book and it's awesome and that was that was the way it was for me like you know i would read it in the read it in a book and it's like this is really cool but i want to do this whatever this is like i want to do it oh, and yeah, i sure. would watch a movie and i'd be like oh, the movie's cool but i want to go do that you know so 
Um, yeah. And I mean, like at the classical school that I teach at, I kind of have the flexibility of like making them do things and not just teaching them things. So like in the fall, the Latin teacher and I, we're going to pair up and we're going to create an assignment where our kids have to build a trebuchet. Oh, that's great. And they're going to, they're going to have to like do it all in Latin probably because he's hardcore that way. That's but awesome. you know, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's going to be really cool and really rewarding. And then like my eighth graders in the spring, We'll do in California has this big missions project thing that every kid has to do in like fourth and fifth grade. Um, so they have to do their missions project here. But like when they get to eighth grade, they're also going to do their medieval castles and churches oh, project where they have to like build or replicate some kind of really awesome medieval church or castle. Um, and that'll close out our medieval unit. Wonderful. So. Well, I can't wait to see. Uh, I can't wait to see pictures of all that stuff. That's, that'll oh, yeah. be neat. <laughs> yeah. That'll it'll be be neat. Good. Keep, keep the medieval. Uh, the medievalist flag flying out there in California. Oh, yeah. Gotta. Uh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for talking with me, um, Hannah, and I, I really appreciate it. And I, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I look forward to having you back. We'll find another subject that you can Yeah, if you on. ever have, if you ever have an episode on, like, Anglo-Saxon food or something, I know, like, an unhealthy amount about food. Oh, so. yes, food. Well, and, and the, great, <laughs> yeah. the great thing about food is, like, uh going forward in time like food pretty much you know uh for quite a while stays the same in in the medieval world yeah. so um it's really the last couple hundred years where we have any advancements in that that's, thank god yeah that's right that's true <laughs> excellent well we'll definitely have you back to talk about anglo-saxon food for sure so all right well thanks for talking and i will look forward to the next time great thank you You've been listening to The Greenwood, the official podcast of the Company of Little Dunmo.